Right, hello folks. I recognise a few faces here. Um, and I think a few of you may have heard this story before, but you're obviously gluttons for punishment and you've come back. Um, I always have to start this talk by asking people, do you believe in such a thing as destiny? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm not sure, because I'm an historian, and I believe, you know, for better or for worse, we make our own destiny. But then again, how can I explain this? Because my family and I moved into this old house in a village called Broughton, which is about a mile from Saltburn on the Cleveland coast. Actually, I'm saying old house. Uh, if I had to put you on the spot and say, how old do you think a house like this is? What do you reckon, folks? 1830, did you say? Not, not a million miles away, but it's a bit older than that. Um, it's actually, I, I would say it's a Georgian house, a late Georgian house, or possibly Regency. Uh, I always think that if you gave a child a box of crayons and you said, draw me a house, they would draw you a house a bit like that. Because actually, what is a Georgian house but a doll's house? You know, the, 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 the charm of Georgian architecture, there's many charms, I guess, but one of them is the simplicity. It's the elegance of them. There's just the door in the middle. I can't do this with this. There's a door in the middle, a window either side, three windows above. Couldn't be simpler, really. The windows up in the roof, which I will come to very shortly, they were put in in the Edwardian period. Well, my family and I moved in back in um, December 1999, so it's actually quite some time now. And whilst we were doing some renovation work up here in the attic, and this is what it looked like then. Uh, I always have to say this because my wife hates me for showing you this photograph. Uh, and I always have to faithfully promise her that I'll tell you it does look a lot better now. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. Uh, but actually I had the sense at that time to realise that something was happening. And I did take a photograph because we found a little bit of woodworm up in the timbers and we got a, a firm in to do the treatment work for us. And the night before they were scheduled to start that work, they sent a chap across to make sure that we prepared everything properly. And he was up here in the attic. I've got to set the scene on this, folks. Um, it was December. And it's about 9.30 at night. It's dark. Um, so there was just a feeble 40-watt electric light bulb hanging from one of those timbers. We were downstairs rolling up carpets because we were going to treat the whole house. And the first thing I knew was that this chap was shouting down the stairs, uh, I think you better come up here and have a look at this. And I didn't like the sound of that at all. <laughs> <coughs> um, and I went up very reluctantly. And actually, this is the view that you get of the attic when you come up the stairs. And he was stood in that far right-hand corner as we were looking at this image. And I think you can see that he peeled back the anaglypta wallpaper. And would you believe it, 
he'd, uh, he'd found a hidden door <laughs> behind that wallpaper. You know, if I put this in a novel, people would say, oh, come off it, you know, what a cliche this is, that an historian moves into an old house and he finds a hidden door in the <laughs> attic, you know. But it's true, it's true. Um, so I got up uh, and I'm, I'm looking at him and he stood by that door and he has the door open and he has a torch in his hand. And I walk towards him and he says, well, have a look for yourself. So he gives me the torch and I kneel down because you can probably see the door is only about three foot high. I, I wish I could tell you that this is a wonderful old oak door that should be listed or whatever. But it's not. It's a feeble, flimsy plywood door. So I knelt down and put my head through the door and I shone the torch into the inky darkness beyond. And I have to tell you folks, it was a really low moment for me because all I could see as I moved the beam from left to right, left to right, was death and decay. The biggest bird's nest I've ever seen in my life. <coughs> yeah, I, folks, you know this, I've told this story too many times. And every time I tell it, it gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> but honestly, it was about three foot across, perhaps even a meter, and mixed in with all the straw and all the other things that birds create. I won't go into too much detail. Um, I could see rusty pieces of metal, shards of broken glass, soil fabric, pieces of paper, you name it. About a foot deep and stretching actually from where I am to around about where that wall is. And uh, the guy said, well, you're going to have to clear all this out before our lads start tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Shouldn't take you more than an hour. <laughs> and he disappeared. And this is when you know who your friends are. Because uh, at 10 o'clock at night, I rang my brother-in-law, Dave, and bless him, he came out to help me. And we had to crawl into that ungodly space beyond the door. Felt a little bit dangerous because there were dead birds in there. There were about 12 dead birds in various, I, I'm sorry about this, in various stages of decomposition. <laughs> Good. Um, and, and it did feel a little bit dangerous to crawl in there. So we tried to protect ourselves by putting balaclavas on. <laughs> I don't really know what that did, but it felt better. And, um, and we put some scarves across our faces, which I think is probably a bit more practical. And then we found some pink rubber gloves in, <laughs> in the kitchen. And I have to say, folks, it's a terrible admission, this, but it was the first time in my life I've ever worn pink rubber gloves <laughs> in the kitchen. And uh, anybody who uses them knows, of course, they're very sensitive. You can feel everything through them. So I can remember what those birds felt like when we had to pick them up, you know. Uh, and we had to do that all the way through till about four o'clock in the morning. And at four o'clock, finally, we got everything out. We bagged it up into wheelie bin bags, about eight or nine of them, dragged them down through the house into the garage, just dropped them into a dark corner and we forgot all about them. And then three months later, I wake up on a lovely spring day, so it was a Saturday. And the first thought in my head is, I, I wonder what's in those bags. 
Never thought about them before, because there was so much happening at that time in the house. So even before breakfast, I went down and I dragged one of the bags out into the spring sunshine. And of course in the sunshine, uh, I saw things that I never saw on that dark December night. And the first thing that I saw was an edge poking out of the straw. And I kind of looked at it and I bent down and I pulled it out and wiped it very professionally on my sleeve. And um, yeah, wow. It was a wow moment. Uh, it's, it's a Victorian studio photograph. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is where my pulse rate started to go up. And it's actually where, you know, I started with, do you believe in such a thing as destiny? Because suddenly, you know, these are wonderful things that have been dealt to me as an historian. And it really does feel that somebody up there, I don't know where they are, is, is, has dealt me these cards. And I, I have to play them. And I, I brought that first one out and then I looked back and there were edges poking out everywhere. And I pulled another one out. Well, you can see. Um, it took us, there were about 20 in the first bag. And that was exciting. Um, but finally, it took us months and months and months to go through all the bags. But finally, we found 130 Victorian photographs. And you know, I, I suspect that I've got fellow historians in the room here. If you go into your attic and you find 130 Victorian photos, you, you get excited. But for me, this, this was just a, a gift of a lifetime, really. And there won't, well, let me quickly, I don't have time to show you them all, but um, that was the first one that we found. They're all carte de visite. You can probably see they're quite small format. Um, these originated, as the title suggests, in France, 1850s. Around about 1859-60, they came over to this country and there was an absolute mania for them. And, and you can see why they're called card of visite, because they're almost the size of visiting cards. And you might actually call on people in Bishop Auckland or whatever and leave one of these with them. And then if you're lucky, they might call back and leave one with you. And gradually these build up in terms of people's albums. I suspect that people here today might have albums at home where you'll find these because they were enormously popular. So that was the first one that we found. And um, I can only show you four, uh, what is it, eight others. Um, actually, my story about the bird's nest is true. The, one, the top one, you can see the physical evidence. <laughs> of that and the miracle honestly folks if you've seen where these came from is that that's one of the few photographs that's soiled by the birds the rest well you can see can't you I mean, if you look at the top left hand corner the i think probably two sisters they're in a photographic studio in barnard castle and uh, they have that tired curtain hanging up behind them and actually they're, they're crystal clear and you can digitize these to a high resolution nowadays. And the, the detail, quite honestly, is stunning. And I love any number of these. I love the bottom left. This is a child. Well, I hope it's a child going to a fancy dress uh, party. And I also love this one of the father and his son. You know, you hear a lot about stern, autocratic, 
Victorian fathers. Well, there were plenty of them. But actually, look at the tenderness between those two. It's really very touching. I've got to be careful I don't get too sentimental because I'm sure you know Victorian cameras had a long exposure time. So you had to remain very still. For a time. It's the reason, of course, we don't see Victorians smiling that much in, in, in photographs because it's hard to maintain a, a natural smile for that time. And he might be holding the little blighter very close to him to make sure he doesn't move. But actually, I think there's a real tenderness there. And honestly, 130 of these, every one tells a story. And uh, they're wonderful. And the real heartbreaker of this is that none of them have names on. And honestly, it is a heartbreaker because I know that these people meant something to somebody who once lived in our house. Why else are they in the attic? Um, but I've put them up online and I've talked to people and I've managed to, to name about seven of them, which is not bad going. But honestly, I don't think I'll ever be able to. I, I don't know who those two sisters are. I wish I did. I wish I did. So I always have to just preach a quick sermon. Go home, folks. Get your albums out. Put information against the photographs. It really does make a big difference. Yeah. So 130 of the photographs, and I, I haven't counted them, but lots and lots. They're in a very battered plastic bag now. Lots and lots of these. These are household accounts. We, we found these. Can you see the hole in it? We found these on one of those old-fashioned metal spikes, you know? I sometimes see them in restaurants still. Um, and over the years, whoever it was had paid their bills, folded them really quite neatly, and then had impaled them on the spike, the kind of satisfied moment, or, you know, it's paid. And they'd built like geological layers. And we could go back down through those layers, looking at the pattern of, and actually very quickly this told us that this must be a woman, the pattern of her spending. And actually it does tell us an awful lot about people. It's what we, well, when I was in the academic world, we would have called consumer culture. But it does, it does tell you something. I mean, am I the only person here today, if I'm in the supermarket at the checkout, I'm always looking at the person in front of me, who I don't know at all, but I'm looking at what they're taking out of their basket. Because every item tells me something about them as people. So all of these were wonderful clothes, because we were trying to work out who this belonged to. And um, I can't show you them all, but there's just a very typical one. And it's full of clothes. You know, it tells us a place, it's Pierce Bridge, which I'm sure you know, is between, what, Darlington and Barnard Castle. It gives us a date, 1899, gives us a name, Miss Johnson, and she's buying a coat from a tailor and britches maker, not many of them left, uh, for 10 shillings. So, you know, every piece of this was part of a jigsaw of a person's life. And bit by bit, we were actually putting that life back together again. And this is a later one. <coughs> she's 1918, and she's actually down in what I would say was my neck of the woods, Retcar. And she's taking some counterpane, some bed covers to the Cleveland Laundry Company Limited. 
So bit by bit, we began to get a picture of this woman, and we knew by this point it must be a woman. I don't know, does anybody here still do this? Uh, newspaper cuttings? I must admit, I, I don't, but my parents used to do it an awful lot. They'd go through the local paper and get anything to do with the family or the chapel uh, or the community or whatever. And the Victorians did this on the industrial scale. And she, there's, there are lots of newspaper cuttings and they do tell you something because there's a reason why people cut these out. And that means that they've left their fingerprints on it. They tell you something about them. This big one is from the people. It's uh, Sunday, October the 22nd, 1905. And it's actually the centenary celebrations of the Battle of Trafalgar, 1805. And I still don't know why she did cut this out, to be honest. Uh, but I know it's telling me something, if only I can work it out. You know, you just said about that being, you know, a fingerprint at that time. Yes. Have you actually thought of getting a fingerprint? I have not, actually, no. Um, they've been kept in a confined space for a long Yes, long I mean, they've been handled a lot, yeah. but actually, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, be interesting. I've not thought about that. So, yeah, absolutely. So now there's a part of a mag. Um, would that... Well, you see, I don't know what her fingerprints are, obviously, and, and the people at the time. But, uh, yeah. Actually, I've got a friend who uh, works in the police. Yes. Watch this space. What about the census? Oh, I've done the census. Big time. Uh, hey, don't get me going. We'll be here all day. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a, it's a key source. And, and it's, it's one of the key sources that's allowed me to really build this story together. You know. um, this, this smaller one that she kept is from the 1930s. And it's how to suppress a cough in the cinema. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it could be. If anybody wants to borrow it, you know, you have a... Um, and actually, again, we thought, why, why did she cut that out? Why did she do that? And then much, much later, we don't know her fingerprints, but we did find out that she suffered from bronchitis. And there would have been a problem for her. So, again, all of those were just bits and pieces. That, um, that's, that's the Trafalgar one, and that's the coffee in the cinema. Um, and they all helped, you know. There was, there was a woman gradually coming to life for us. Um, oh, well. I'll show you. We found this as well. Uh, the great heartthrob of the 1920s, Valentino, in his iconic film, The Sheik. And why has that ended up in our attic? Well, I think there's only one answer for that. And is she went to see this film, made a big impression on her. Uh, and I think she went to the manager, here it is actually in the flesh, at uh, the, uh, the end of the show and said to him, can I have the poster as a souvenir of it? She's cut off the unromantic bit. I think this is Broughton Grand Cinema on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want that. Uh, and she's dated, she's dated it. You can probably see top right hand corner. It's December the 17th, 1926. 
And all my life as an historian, I've been more interested in the history of what I would call everyday people, you and me. And finding things like this is gold dust. Because, you know, this is what makes life worth living. It's the dreams, it's the fantasies, the stories that we tell ourselves. So again, I felt closer and closer to her. We didn't find too many objects, but we found a few. This is one of them. It's, I know what face lotion she used. Because this was made up for her in Retcar by a chemist. And uh, it's bone dry inside, but uh, you can probably see it's still got a cork in the neck of the bottle. And I've never had the courage to take that out. <laughs> Feels like I might release evil into the world, or, or a genie. Um, but actually, uh, we also found a, a, a tiny scent bottle, about three inches high. And that was bone dry, but we, and it had a cork. But we did take the cork out of that. And I kid you not, I think it was Edwardian, the, the scent. And just for about, well, no more than five minutes, perhaps not even that, I could smell that perfume on the tips of my fingers. That's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, and bit by bit, she started to come alive for me. Um, I couldn't bring this today because it's too fragile, but we found a sampler amongst the rest. It's not the best sampler I've seen in my life. It's quite crude, really. I've been told by people who are experts that this is almost certainly an apprentice piece for a young girl just starting to learn her domestic skills, you know. Uh, but you, you get the classic uh, alphabet and numbers at the top. There are quotations in the Bible in the middle along the lines of fear God and your parents. And that tells you something about childhood <laughs> at the time. Um, and then at the bottom, you almost always get a name and, and a place. I don't know whether you can read that, folks, at the bottom. Yeah, well done. It's Lydia. Lydia Ann Johnson Darlington. And that was, again, a big clue. Because I don't really remember, one of those bills had the name Johnson on it as well. So, you know, you start to actually do a bit of detective work and things start to slot together. We didn't know who Lydia was when we found this, but we now know that she was the sister of the woman who all this belonged to. And Lydia would have made this when she was perhaps, I don't know, eight or nine or ten. And then, tragically, she died of bronchitis when she was 18. And I think her sister kept this as a tender souvenir of a lost sister. So all of these things had stories attached to them. Oh, and then there are the tiny, tiny souvenirs that have absolutely no monetary value at all, but they mean everything. Uh, I've got to be careful with this. I, shouldn't, I, I don't know how many times I've done this and it doesn't do it any good. But I love it. It's, I think it was a flower. I think it may even have been a rose. I don't know. The flower has long since gone. But there's a pin in a label. And I think the flower was given to this woman. And I think it meant something to her. It really did. And she went home and she made this homemade label. You can see the wavy edge where she's cut it. And she's written on it, Souvenir from Dickie. 
November the 9th, 1891, Bolam Lane. I always think to myself, what was going on in Bolam Lane <laughs> <laughs> on that day? Well, I don't know. No, we still out in Piercebridge, Gainford, Bolam area in the Tees Valley, that lovely highest stretch of the Tees. And um, I don't know what was going on in Bolam Lane at that day, but whatever it was, it meant something to her. It really did. And she went, she went home, I think that night, and she marked the moment. And we finally found out, it took us a long time to do this, census help, it took us a long time to work out that she came to our house in 1939, right at the end of her life. And all through her life, she moved from one set of rented rooms to another, packing and unpacking, packing and unpacking. This is a souvenir from Dickie. Looking very big there, but it's tiny. How easy it would have been for her to have lost that souvenir in all those times that she moved. She never did. She never did. She never let the memory of that November day slip away from her. And they're all wonderful and they all helped us but the most wonderful thing of all folks are the letters because believe it or not 134 to us are great but over 300 of her letters we found which is just marvelous absolutely marvelous and it's the letters that really open out her story and her character this is one of my favorites i brought it today i shouldn't again really be doing this because it's so fragile i can't resist it uh, you can see how fragile it is because actually the envelope has only got one lip left of it. Actually, there were three when we found this. this I've been a naughty boy on this, Ray. But, and actually, when we found it, they all fell open like that. And that tells you something. And that tells you that this has been opened and closed hundreds, if not thousands of times. It's one of her favorite souvenirs. And, uh, well, actually, let me put it up on the screen. There's the letter to Miss Annie Johnson. Well, there's that name again. North Road, Gamford, it's that neck of the woods. That's where the story starts. Near Darlington, in case you don't know where Darlington is, England. And even though somebody has torn off the stamp, bless them, and almost obliterated the postmark, if you look, and you might have to stand on your head to do this, uh, there's a faint six upside down on the postmark. We knew it had to be the 1890s from all the other stuff we found, and we finally worked out it was 1896. And inside, well, there was this invitation. Oh, I love this. It's just wonderful. It's Mr. and Mrs. Bowen present their compliments to Miss Johnson request the pleasure of her company, I always love this bit, to a moonlight dance on the vicarage lawn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, God, it's just irresistible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, actually, I was just listening to a previous speaker and thinking about heritage events. You know, doing a moonlight dance on the vicarage lawn in Bishop Auckland would be an absolute winner, wouldn't it? You know, really would. I mean, if, and if anybody does it, give us a shout. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll come along. Um, Friday, August the 21st, we worked out it's 1896 and you didn't get in for free. It was uh, admission, lady and gentleman, two and sixpence, which actually at that time is a fair amount of money. I think it's quite a swanky affair. 
uh, dancing to begin at 8 p.m. We found a report of the dance in the Stockton and Arlington Times. It went on till four o'clock in the morning, so it's a good night. Uh, refreshments, wet or dry. I thought that was the weather, but it's actually a polite way of saying alcoholic and non-alcoholic at that time. Um, proceeds for improvements at the vicarage, you know. So I, every time I look at that, I think nothing changes. <laughs> it's actually, it was the vicarage in Bolham. Well, yeah, it was because the, the family, the, ben, the Bowen family, they started in Gainford, and there's a wonderful vicarage, as you probably know, in Gainford, going down to the river. Marvellous place. But he then moved to Bowen, which is a few miles away, and actually there's a lovely vicarage there as well. And it's, that was where this took place. Well, you've got to ask yourself, haven't you? Why did she keep this? And why did she open it so many times? And, you know, call me a hopeless romantic, but I think there is probably only one answer to that. Well, <laughs> she, I, no, she's ditched. She, no, Dickie's been ditched uh, by the look of it, but she's found somebody else at the dance. She's found <laughs> Arthur Augustine Bowen. Well, uh, yeah, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Bowen. He was better known as Gus. And I think it's at this dance that she meets Gus. And they dance in the moonlight. Oh, yeah, I'm getting carried away here. And they have a whirlwind courtship. And I'm, I, 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 in truth, I don't know all the details, although I know some of them. But then the story really started when we found the first letter. And this, honestly, was the very first letter that we found of what turned out to be over 300. And whoa, what a letter it was. Um, it starts, dear Mrs. Bourne. So this is a letter to Annie. She's ditched Dickie. She's, she's now hitched herself to Gus and married him. So now she is Mrs. Bourne. She's, and I should tell you that uh, Gus was the son of the Reverend Mr. and Mrs. Bourne. He's the son of the vicar. So she is now Mrs. Bourne. Dear Mrs. Bourne. Your kind letter gratefully received last evening, too late to answer. Well, dear friend, I note all you said about Mr. Bourne and that vile woman. <laughs> it's a terrible admission, this, folks, but honestly, that was the moment when my eyes lit up because I knew I'd stumbled on a story. And it goes on, I'm truly surprised at Mr. Bourne lowering himself in such a manner and making so little of his lawful wife. But, terrible warning coming up, there are some women that will tempt the best men born with their fascinating <laughs> ways. <laughs> Ladies, it's all your fault. <laughs> and of course we poor men are helpless, you know. <laughs> but, second but, you may depend upon it He'll tire her before long. <laughs> the vile drunken hag. <laughs> Whoa. Well, you know, I honestly, I defy anybody to resist a letter like that. And that was the start of the story. And it took us, that's my wife and I, it took us over 10 years to work out the backstory. Is that 1900? Yeah, yeah, it is. So, you know, it's all happened fairly quickly. If you remember, the Moonlight Dance is 96 and whatever. 
and something has happened by 1900 that has gone terribly wrong. Yeah. So that really set the, the story running. And then we started to find letters from Goss himself that she kept. Uh, and we, as we found them, of course, we read them. Um, we found 17 of his letters. And as we read them, we, we started to see a repeating pattern in Goss's letters because there were four things that Annie always got in a Goss letter. And the first thing that she always got, hold on a sec, well, this is the very first letter we found. My dear wife, my reason for not writing to you is that I did not think you would care to hear from me. It's not a very auspicious start. You can sense the tensions. Something has happened. As to my, well, you find out what has happened. As to my reasons for leaving you as I did, I think we'd better leave that to be discussed at some future time. So he's abandoned her and he's not prepared to talk about it. And then he says, I'm very pleased to hear that you're getting well and strong and sincerely trust that you will be your own self again. So you can work out, can't you? Something's happened, she's had a breakdown in her health and he's left her. Well, that was the first letter. And as we found the other 17, we saw this repeating pattern that there were four things that she always got in a ghost letter. The first thing that she always got, because he was such a charmer, was Gus, were declarations of love, promises of better times in the future. Here he is. Oh, I should, should also point out at this point, for much of his life, he was in the Merchant Navy. So a lot of these letters were written on board ship. And this particular extract was. I've just got an illustration on the left of one of the letters. It's actually not the one that I'm giving you the transcript of. But here he is on board ship, feeling very much alone tonight. Oh, how I wish I was with you. I've quite made my mind not to go to sea again, if I can possibly help it. And here it comes. I have my berth to myself. There are two bunks. How I wish you were in the other. <laughs> Never mind, pet. <laughs> Oh, folks, I just love that. That's so northeastern, isn't it? Yeah. Never mind, pet. The time will soon pass, and we shall be in the same berth. Honestly, I like to think I'm a fairly decent writer myself, and I, I would be proud of that. I really would. Because did you see what he did there? He took the desire of the bonk, and within a sentence or two, he turned it into the romance of the birth. He's a smooth operator, he's good. <laughs> he's a smooth operator. Watch him. Here he is again. Never mind, darling. Lots of darlings in his letters. If only you care for me a little, it shall be my life's duty to make you forget the past and be happy. Four things she always gets in a ghost letter. Declarations of love, promises of better times in the future. And alongside them, the second thing, she always gets other reasons why he can't see her this coming weekend. <laughs> I received your letter with the enclosed 15 shillings. He writes, yeah, no, we'll come to that. Also your wire on Saturday night and I was all prepared for going to Redcar on Sunday. Can I have the next word, please? <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> but unfortunately, <laughs> On Saturday night, or rather early on Sunday morning, while loading up scenery from the theatre, he was a railway porter in Bolton at this point, uh, 
uh, whilst loading up scenery from the theatre, I had the misfortune to fall from the top of a truck and I hurt my back. <laughs> hey, you don't care. I've not been able to sit up and write till just now. I do seem to have some jolly bad luck. <laughs> well, four things she always gets. Declarations of love, promises of better times in the future. Sorry, I can't see you on Sunday. And the third thing, well, I, I'm pretty sure you've spotted it. It's the 15 shillings. Um, there isn't a letter. <laughs> there isn't a letter where he doesn't, at some point or other, ask her for money and or clothes. As you'll see, he writes in one of the letters, I've been chucked out of number one Fairfax Street because I couldn't pay the rent. And I've not found another place yet. I always think I should have a violin <laughs> playing in the background here. Uh, I have to get over this week without a single penny. Yeah, I know. If I'm to come on Sunday, I must ask for a post, Lord, and not later than Wednesday, but must have the cash before asking. What a lad. What, what, what was her income? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question, because as you know, women at that time were usually economically dependent on men. Um, Did you marry for money? Um, no, not really. She didn't get a great deal from ghosts, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, no, she, her father actually was quite a well-off businessman in Darlington and her mother actually came from quite well-off stock in the West Riding. So her mother left her a thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She, she got a thousand pounds which she invested. We've got all of this because we've got her accounts and she got five percent on that and her father left her about three terraced houses in Darlington that she got rentals from. She had about 70 or 80 pounds a year, which sounds nothing now, but at that time was enough to make her independent in a kind of shabby genteel kind of way. And enough for Gus to think, I could dip into that. You know. <clears throat> so the third thing that she always got was the, the begging. And the fourth thing was that amidst all the charm as he tried to coax her and whatever, there were moments in each letter where he bullied her because he was worried she may not send him the money. And these are my two favourites because they're so melodramatic. Failing this, he writes, that's getting five pounds actually from her, which is a lot. On Saturday next, I shall have to go into a hard-up sailor's boarding house, ship on the first opportunity and say goodbye to my wife and old England forever. <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> and then again, another letter. Should you fail me in this case, he writes, I shall go out east with no intention whatever of returning. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's all wave him off. <laughs> well, uh, amidst all of this, um, as we read the letters and the story started to unfold, this is just the start of the story, um, we thought she must have kept a photograph of Goss, you know, but of course none of them have names on them. Except, second from the last bag again, we found this photograph, it's in a frame as you can probably see, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen so that you can see it, but I just want you to see it in the flesh. Um, there were 130 photographs, but only two in frames. And that immediately tells you that whoever was in the frames was important to her. 
This has been on our mantelpiece, I think, to the day she died. So when we found this, we thought, whoa, who's this? And let me put it up on the screen. And there it is. <laughs> yeah, you can all boo now, you know. <laughs> um, well, if you look at it, it's got a velvet covered frame. Yeah, it's worn. It's worn. Yeah, well done. And that's, that tells you something, doesn't it? It's not just been on her mantelpiece, she's been holding this. And actually, if you want to do a Sherlock Holmes on this, you can just about work out she's right-handed. It's a bit more worn on that side than on the left. We saw all that fairly quickly, not quite as quickly as you did, but, but fairly quickly. Uh, what we didn't see was the photograph and what he was telling us. Because actually, if you look at that photograph and the bottom half of it, it's pretty clear, isn't it? You can see all the details, the, uh, the wrinkles in his cuffs, the buttons, whatever. And then you go up to his face and it's almost disappeared. Now, call me a hopeless romantic again. I think there's only one explanation for that. If that was sunlight coming through the window, the whole photograph would have faded in a more uniform kind of way. I think she's been touching that face and dare I say it, kissing it until she's almost kissed it away. And if ever there is a piece of evidence of her powerful, unrequited love for Gus, there it is. There it is. I honestly think that's been on her mantelpiece till the day she died. How do we know it's Gus? Did you look to see if there's any more photographs behind that photograph? Yeah, I did. Uh, good question, because that's actually what I'm just about to talk about. There isn't another photograph, but what there is, when we opened it up... Thank God she did. <laughs> So that was, that was the photograph that told us who Gus was and what he looked like, although he was very faded in terms of his face. Through the miracle of the internet, and I'll have to finish, uh, we found descendants in Australia and Canada and South Africa and you name it. But the people in Australia sent us this photograph of Gus in his sailor's uniform, looking every inch they could. <laughs> <coughs> Um, and honestly, I've tracked this guy around the world. <laughs> what, year, uh, what year is this? Well, this, I, I, I think again, this is 1890s, 1900s. It's not long, really. No, it's not. It's all very quick. Um, and I've tracked him around the world. He got into so many scrapes, did, <laughs> did Gus. I mean, um, he, honestly, I kid you not, he was involved in the Jack the Ripper story in Whitechapel because one of his shipmates was the prime suspect in the, this was, uh, uh, in 1891, he was the very last of the suspected victims of Jack the Ripper. So he got into any number of scrapes, but I don't have time to tell you all about them today. And, uh, oh, if in case you've forgotten, <laughs> I had to go around the world to find this lady, but this is the vile woman in the story, but that's a whole story in itself and I don't have time to talk about it. What we wanted... <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Do you think you found the photographs of him, you found the photograph of a wild woman, did he have a photograph of her? Of her? Well, I don't know. And I suspect that... He the yeah, 
I mean, I suspect that if he did have one, he probably would have lost it at some point or other because he'd moved on from her. But also, what we wanted was a photograph of her. And, and the thing was, of course, why would she put her own name on a photograph? If she didn't put any names on the others, why would she do that? We went through them all. We couldn't find her at all. And then, one Sunday afternoon, knock on the door. I open it. There's an old gentleman in his 80s. And he's there with his son, and the old gentleman is very apologetic and saying, I'm sorry to descend on you like this. He said, but I used to live in this house. And I left when I was a teenager, and I've never been back since. I know it's a terrible imposition, but would it be possible to come in and have a look around for all time's sake? So I dragged him in. <laughs> yeah. And we went around the house and he told us lots of wonderful stories, some of which I can't repeat. And, um, and then at one point, I looked at my wife and she looked at me because we suddenly realised that he was in the house in 1939 when Annie came to rent a room in our house. And if there was one man in God's creation who could go through the photographs for us and find Annie for us, he was sitting in our living room on that Sunday afternoon with the light fading. And at the end of a long day, <laughs> I took him through the 130 uh, photographs. For some reason, he never came back. <laughs> <laughs> they used to be in a shoebox. And on that day, they were still in that shoebox. And I went through them all, and he didn't recognize anybody. No, 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 no. Until I got to the very bottom, and I kid you not, it was. It was stuck to the cardboard at the bottom. And I, I, I peeled off this photograph in desperation, as it were. And this was it. And he said, that's her. That's her. Because, of course, the Annie that he knew was the Annie in 1939, when she was in her 70s. And this is a photograph that's taken of her in red car in the 1930s. That's the 1931 car, apparently. And it's the one photograph that we have of her that we know is her. It's an unusual photograph. How is that? Was that being carded? Yeah, well, do you remember the guys who used to lurk around on seaside promenades, yeah. take your photograph and get your address? Yeah. That's what it is. It's called walking pictures. And he's caught her off guard. She looks a bit stern. But this is the one photograph that we have of Annie. And this is where you've got to make a leap of faith, folks. Is this lady in her 70s? We all do change a bit as we get older. Um, this young woman. Well, yeah, and for me it was the nose actually. I thought, oh, the, I thought yeah. the nose was quite distinctive. And yeah. um, there is no name on this photograph, so I'm having to make that comparison. But I think, well, I absolutely believe it's her. Hey, anybody who has any doubts, just keep them to yourself. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the Annie of my imagination. And this is the Annie of the story. And it's the, uh, she's a bonny lass. And it's the Annie on the front of the book that I've written about this. The Love of Dangerous Men, Secret History and Letters. Oh gosh, I've got some with me. Can I ask, was the photograph, was it one, did it have the photographer's name on the back? Yes, we, almost all of them, we've got the photographer's. similar to the one that she had of him? Of him. Oh wow, I'm not sure, I'll have to go back and double check. Same time, could. There's another point. I've not thought about that one either, so I'll, I'll go back and check. I suspect it, 
it wasn't, but uh, it's worth checking. And uh, yeah, so if you want the full story, buy the book. I'll sign it for you. You'll have a family heirloom. <laughs> uh, and these are some of the nice reviews on Amazon that it's got. And you can get it on Amazon uh, either as a paperback or as a Kindle. And folks, it's really, it's really weird because I had a very good friend called Andrew Robson as well. Ha <laughs> ha! Spooky. Yeah, spooky. spooky. Um, yeah, she's not, obviously, she's not a member of my family or whatever, but she feels like she is now because, you know, I've spent so much time researching her life. So that, folks, is the end of the first episode of that story. Thanks a lot for listening. Yeah.